Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Welcome to this episode of the Software People Stories. Today, I am in conversation with Dr. Ashok Talukdar. He is a very difficult person to describe in a few words. He has done so many things. So when we start talking about his origin story, it felt more like tech nostalgia, talking about standards, companies, and applications of the 1980s. And what interests him, starting with an interest in puppeteering to neuroscience, and genomics and the kind of work that he does today. In his career, he has been an author of numerous papers as well as textbooks. And we talk about how he keeps his interest alive and how he is still so active and how he would like a lot more youngsters to get into the learning habit and into science. You have to listen to his full story in his own words. Listen on. Welcome to the Software People Stories, Sashok. The moment I heard about you from my colleague, I said, I must meet you and then at least talk to you and then get your story for our listeners. You've done so many things. I mean, pretty impressed with also the, not only the depth, but also the variety of areas where you have been contributing. So if we can start with your origin story of your association with IT, then we can take it from there. First of all, uh, thank you for having me. In IT, it was a very, very interesting story. The thing is, uh, when I was pretty young, I wanted to be in performing art and uh, literary kind of work. So I used to write. And then uh, that also has a very unique story. I was uh, once having some argument with one of my elder brothers, and he said that, uh, you know, any story writing is not that difficult, but detective story writing is uh, most difficult. And it so happened that uh, one of the leading uh, journal or magazine that time in Kolkata, where I was, uh, uh, I spent my school days. So they ran a competition and, or a contest. And uh, I wrote my first detective story for that contest, and uh, I was awarded. Wow. Okay. And uh, then I started puppetry. And I used a glove rod, and then I finally settled on shadow puppetry, which uh, within a few years, I became one of the leading puppet theater in Kolkata. Wow. But things so happened that... Uh, you know, there is not much of a financial gain when you are in this kind of domain. So looking for somebody, few hundred rupees to help us on buying something. And then, but things so happened that uh, by the time I finished my BSc and MSc, and I always wanted to be in teaching. The reason is that what 
what motivated me to be in teaching is that if you are a teacher, it doesn't matter whether it is in school, college, or university, you have a couple of vacations. And what I thought, I'll be using that vacation to pursue my other type of interest, like, as I said, that performing art and things like that. But it so happened that uh, after my MSc, my results were not very good, and uh, I did not get good grades to get an admission to a PhD course anywhere. So then I thought, okay, I must do something. And that is the time when I used programming as my, what I would say, uh, my way of living, you know? So it was 1976 when I finished my master's and then I went for PhD studies in Jadapur University, and then I started doing programming and uh, as, a, as a research scholar. And then what happened from there, I first started using Burroughs 6800. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. At that time, Jadapur University was known to have a Burroughs machine. I also yes. started my career on Burroughs. So Burroughs 6800 and uh, started with Fortran for my PhD studies. Okay. And that time, as I said, my grades were not very good. I did not get a scholarship, but I somehow managed and uh, started doing it. And you can say that was the inception of my journey in IT. That time IT was not there. I would say that in 1976, I wrote my first Fortran 4 program. Mm. And uh, Burroughs came a little later. First, I started using it at... Uh, Calcutta University, and if I remember it right, it was IBM 1130, okay? Okay. And then in Jadapur University, the Burroughs 6800 came sometime at the fag end of the year, which uh, took a few months to be installed. And once I went to Madras IIT to use IBM 370, once Burroughs was installed, I started using it as a research fellow for some other professors, and uh, you can call it a kind of programming job. I learned from the book of Professor Rajaraman, Fortran. Mm, yes, and I remember. Started yeah. from there. So I was there for a few years, and then I registered for PhD studies. But in my uh, journey, there are lots of ups and downs. So things didn't work out well. I left that and uh, joined NIC in Kolkata, National Informatics mm. Center, okay. which had Hewlett-Packard, I think it is 3000, okay, which also Fortran 4. But anyway, and uh, then in 1982, I joined ICL India or ICIM. And uh, that time, as you know, in India, mini computers started coming in. And uh, ICL, they got System 25 rebranded as ICIM 101. And uh, the first ICIM 101 was ordered by Coles Crane in Kolkata. They wanted OLTP. And uh, in System 25 or ICIM 101, it was called IAS, Interactive Application Services. Okay. Okay. And uh, there are many challenges due to voltage fluctuations and power 
you know, those days UPS was not that popular. But ECM 101 became quite popular because within the machine, there was a stabilizer and they call it battery backup. So if the, if the power goes down, the battery in the computer just keeps the memory alive. No disk, nothing, nothing will work, but it will ensure that the memory is not dead. Okay. Memory is alive. So ECM 101 became pretty popular. I'm talking about the 1980s. And then so happened that some of the government organizations like LIC and uh, Reserve Bank or the Nationalist Bank, they decided for digitization. So there was a move to digitize all their applications. And then a little later, Wipro came in and then HCL also came in into the market with small computers. PC was not there in those days. So this ECM 101, because of its strength on battery backup, we were able to do enter into LIC as a POC and they gave us some application. But the problem was in ECM 101, there was no software for data entry as when you go for you know, digitization, the first, first major work is that to convert all your paper data into the machine. So the right. few years is only the data entry, nothing else. Mm-hmm. And in ECM 101, we did not have any data entry software. So my first product, which I wrote in 1983 or 84, I don't remember exactly, is called ODE, Online Data Entry. And mm-hmm. that was super hit. Okay. Super hit because LIC decided finally to give the order to us. Okay, even though there were a competition, but this software. And after that, RBI came up with the idea of digitizing the, uh, all the nationalized bank and uh, other banks. Private banks, they have their liberty to choose any machine they want. So our 101 went to Greenless Bank and another ICL, that is ME29, went into Hong Kong Bank, Hong Kong Bank, Bombay, Hong Kong Bank of Middle East, that is another story which I don't want to go into right now. But that time, RBI said that we will be using COBOL as the programming language for all the banks. Okay. So what you do in ECIM 101, it was only assembler and IAS and all those things. You had to write the code in assembly. I'm talking about 82, 83. So COBOL was there, but it did not meet the spec which RBI wanted. So, and by that time, due to LIC and few other projects, I was earmarked as the person who starts when everybody stops. And Mm -hmm. that was good and bad. Good in the sense is that I started learning many things, but bad is that I had few successes and rest of my life started from there to retain that reputation mm. that when everybody mm. stops, Ashok starts. And mm. that is bad about me. And that is why even in this age, okay, I do something different, new. And you asked me a question, this variety, that variety started practically. Inception was there in Ikin in early days when 
people used to believe that if there is any problem, give it to Ashok, he will fix it. And uh, so the journey was good. In Ikim, I did quite a few things. I mean, first time uh, after, after some time in 1985-86, Ikim decided to enter into the networking market. And, uh, you know, PNT, which in those days was DOT, they decided to go for 197 online directory inquiry. And for that, there was no network in India those days. So we got X25, X25, X3, and X18, and some of those standards. So I wrote software on a mainframe, which is 2966, to do reverse emulation. Because in India at that time, foreign currency crisis was at, at its peak. So government said, Anything which is manufactured in India has to be integrated with it. We will only get the CPU imported. So disk drives, terminals has to be in India, manufactured in India. And that time, the only Indian manufacturer was a company called Intkem in Chennai. And Intkem, they did Kokosai compatible terminal. Mm -hmm. Now, it, it is a dumb terminal, but its form factors and everything was compatible with Kokusai. Now, how to make that terminal work with a mainframe? So on the mainframe, the first time in the world I wrote reverse emulated. That means in the mainframe, we'll be doing the reverse emulation and convert the mainframe form factors into Kokusai form factor and send it through X3, that is RS232 link, mm -hmm. over a 1200 baud modem to the 197 <laughs> inquiry directory services. Okay. You can understand how complex and what used to happen because it was 1200 bits per second line and their modems were also manufactured in India, and they used to fail very frequently. So what started happening? They were hanging sessions. The session started by an operator, and due to this bad quality of this modem link, the link breaks. But the session is there in the mainframe because it is running a reverse emulator. It doesn't know what is the status of that. Then I had to change all those things and use some of those as a strength and make sure that the operator could reconnect to, because it was a mainframe, I was maintaining the session. It could reconnect to its session and mm -hmm. all those various complex, complex challenges in Indian environment made me to be aware, starting from mainframe to a mini computer, okay? So, mm -hmm various products and solutions started in Ikim by me, started from ODE and then networking and so on and so forth. Of course, in Ikim, I got quite a few awards, excellence awards and so on and so forth. And banks, whether it is Hong Kong Bank, Hong Kong Bank became a customer. And that was another very interesting story. What happened is that I wrote a networking software where a IBM PC XT could work as a terminal in ME29, which Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank uh, had, okay? Now, 
without my knowledge, what the sales guy did, he said, okay, so you have a bank at Bank of Middle East in Dubai, and there are a lot of Indians. So to get a niche over your competition, you can offer this terminal to your Dubai branch so that Indians, they can directly interact with their bank account in Bombay. So mm. everybody was excited. They said, wow. So they ordered, so they ordered the machine and they installed the machine in Dubai, but it doesn't work. And mm-hmm. then as a, as a you know, promotional thing, they invited their chairman and all the chairman or chairmen, they were supposed to inaugurate it three or four days down the line and it doesn't work. Problem came to me. And honestly speaking, I didn't understand why it is not working. It is working in Bombay in the same room, but it doesn't work from Dubai. It was a very interesting problem. The interesting problem was that you also worked in mainframe. You know that in Burroughs, they they were having candy. So Mm -hmm. candy is the online terminal. And they were all working in synchronized protocol where there are polling and many other things, and it has a timeout. So the Hong Kong bank connected their Dubai terminal to the Bombay through satellite communication. So the signal goes from Dubai to the satellite, to the central hub, which is in Hong Kong. Then it goes to satellite once again, and then coming to Bombay. And those are all geostatic satellites. They take about 200 milliseconds on one particular direction. So it was taking more than half a second to reach from Dubai to Bombay. And by that time, the protocol was timing out. Hmm. So link broke. So we could not. And then what I did, I developed, because the original software was developed by me, I made, I used the synchronized protocol or synchronous protocol between the Hong Kong bank machine in Bombay and in the same room, another PC. And this PC to to that PCXT, we kept the buffer of the terminal. And asynchronously, I was synchronizing it. Okay. Okay. So whenever they do an inquiry in Dubai, it is immediately, there was a mirroring of the memory between the Bombay and the Dubai. And I'm talking about in 1983-84. Those days, nothing was there. Today, you ask any any kid, they will give you a lecture of hours on those subjects. But those Mm -hmm. days, nothing was there. So the Dubai PC and Bombay PC, I was mirroring the memory, okay? Like you do today, you know, in many of those. And then from the Bombay, taking that memory and then using synchronous protocol to communicate with the mainframe. And the mainframe responds back, once again, memory uh, mirroring. So it worked. And thank God, when the chairman of different company came to inaugurate, they they saw it is working. And of course, Hong Kong Bank was so happy that they ordered quite a few (laughs) machines. Okay. Wonderful. These are the kind of of things. Uh, (laughs) And then when I went to US, Ikim thought that they will start a US division. So it was Ikim International. 
So I went there and it was one of the best moments in my life as I did many things which were even more challenging. And the greatest thing which I still, I mean, I'm proud of, the first 64-bit database was done by me. Oh. The first 64-bit database in the world was done mm -hmm. by me. Mm. Why? That time I'm talking about in 1991, 92, when I went to US to start ICIM International. Okay. So that time we got an opportunity with digital and digital had this alpha, DEC alpha, which was the first 64-bit database, or sorry, first 64-bit computer in the world. But the point is that the hardware was unique Undoubtedly, it was the first, but it did not have, other than the compiler, any other software. And unless you have the database, the machine will not sell in the marketplace. So DEC was looking for people who understand 64-bit computers and also who understand internal of databases. So we were knocking the door for business and it so happened we landed in digital and we told them, why? Why don't you give that opportunity to us? They said, excuse me, you are few Indians. In India doesn't make any computers. What do you know about compilers or database, internals or 64-bit? I said, I don't know anything. And said, please, the door is open. Please leave. I said, okay, let's have a deal. You give me a computer and give me four weeks time. If I can make it work, you sign a deal with me. And if I fail, you don't have any commitment as I'm not asking any money from you either at advance or signature of any contract. They said, okay, we don't mind as for last six, seven months, we are looking for people who know 64-bit computers or architecture and also know database internal. So if you are not asking any money, we are fine. I said, okay, you will be surprised digital arranged a office for me in Menlo Park in Informics office. And okay. they, Informics was the first to come up with the multi-threaded programming. They call it DSA, Distributed System Architecture. Okay. And for 64-bit database, I wrote the first assembly program for Informics on that DEC Alpha so that the Informix database works on that and can work in a multi-threaded fashion, okay? So, and it was practically also the first multi-threaded, multi-server application of the database. And after four weeks, it worked. And then as our original understanding, they paid me from day one when I entered that office. Oh, very okay? nice. Mm. Yeah, like that I used to do because we have to open the doors for Ikim International. So I used to go to different vendors and ask them, tell me, what is your most complex problem lying on your plate for months? And by doing that, I opened four or five new accounts. And, you know, PowerPoint 4, Microsoft's PowerPoint 4 was also done by me for Okay. when we wanted to open a door in Microsoft. So that's, that's my journey. 
and it is still continuing. But from computer, I went to genomics, and now I'm in health sciences. All yours. Yeah, that was not only your story, but it looked like a brief history of the Indian computer industry and a compressed computer science class. Yes. I'm not going into other details. I did yeah. many things <laughs> which pulls apart, you know, pulls apart. I did mm -hmm. something today and day after tomorrow, I do something else, completely pulls apart. Yeah, so but that is going to be my question of leave alone that from assembler to, I think, molecular genomics, right? Or something that you work on. How do you balance or reconcile the general expectation that academics are more theoreticians, whereas you've been a problem solver, which is application or as an engineer, so to say, engineering versus science. For genomics, uh, it was 2008 when we were thinking of what to do so that as a startup, we can enter into, into the market and be successful. And then we found that our, uh, our research told us that genomics, which was not very but hard by people, I'm talking about 2008. So, and those days it needed high performance computing. Okay. And we found that, okay, people are talking about genomics and we were the first company and the name of the company is Interpetomics, the first genomics big data company in India. And we started that and it went very well. And then I had a passion for teaching because I did so many good things or so many challenging things. I always thought sharing it to other young guys will help us. And that was the motivation which made me to look at academics. So I was adjunct faculty in quite a few leading universities and I authored a few books on that. You know, in 2000, I started a mobile computing company called CellNext. And after I left CellNext, all my innovations went into the book called Mobile Computing, Architecture and Solutions. And that became a textbook and what Mike McGrohill used to call it syllabus making book. Because it was the first in the series. People used to take the table of content and make the syllabus of MTech. Now it is all those are at undergraduate level, but those days it was MTech syllabus. And then I wrote another book on architecting secure software system. Software has always been considered as non-functional requirement. I said, no, security is a functional requirement. But if you see all literature, they say that security is a non-functional requirement. Right. So when you develop your system, you don't care about security. It is an afterthought. And that is why there are so many security holes in all the applications, all applications, even today. So I said, no, that is wrong. So security is a functional requirement. And I wrote my book on security architecting secure software system. And there was a guy who talked about misuse. You know, you heard about use case. So he introduced the concept of misuse case. A security okay. is, a mis is a case of misuse. And I explained that on how to integrate. There are tons of literature which says that how to integrate or convert a use case into a system design. So 
first time in the world in my book, I said, how can you convert a misuse case for security into a functional requirement? That was that book all about. So it 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 was interesting journey. And now I'm working on AI, machine learning, deep learning. And uh, my luck always favors me. And uh, uh, NITK Suratkal, what I taught in 2007, came back to me saying that, well, can you please join us? I said, okay. So two weeks ago, I started teaching the final year undergraduate student, machine learning and deep learning. So I mean, but one thing let me tell you is that because I have worked in so many areas and even today I'm hands-on, I write my own code, no matter whether it is R, Python, C, C++, or sometime even JavaScript or Node.js, I write my own programs to do the POC. Once it works, then I give it to somebody to enhance it or change it under my direction. And... Uh, my depth of knowledge, but more than depth of knowledge, the width of knowledge, because I worked from compilers to cancer, okay, my breadth of knowledge is very, very wide. That helps me to solve a problem and relate the problem with somebody or something which I have seen earlier. So always I have a solution for any problem and that happened over the last 40 years of working in very technology domains and technology problems. That's actually very relevant in today's case where everybody says there are these huge social problems. I think when we spoke last, you were talking about the healthcare system, the inefficiencies and so on. If one wants to use technology to solve some of those problems, is knowing technology alone enough or what is the support that the technologist needs to be able to create an impact? I, I, I don't think it would be appropriate for me to say yes or no to your question. But let me tell you this. If it is a synthetic system, and let me define what I mean by synthetic system. Synthetic system are those systems where human beings conceive the idea and they make the architecture like a building. But when I'm with nature, for example, you are working on healthcare, human health. Now, the challenges with healthcare or human health is that the unknowns are much more. Whereas in a banking system, we define what is unknown, what is not unknown, and we do a system spec depending upon what we know. But in healthcare or any of those biological or natural system, the unknowns are too high. We do not know. Even today, new theories are coming. I mean, before uh, Newton, nobody knew about gravitation. Of course, there were a few guys, they talked about many of those things. So some of the natural problems, many of those stalwarts, they gave an equation. But a lot of time, equation, we don't know. So we go to statistical means, like statistical physics, when we could not see what is happening inside the you know, atom at that level. So statistics and all those things came in. Now, to answer your question, what happens is that in healthcare, you need to have an understanding of both the domain, 
which is necessary in any, any, any type of application. But in healthcare, I would say that it is slightly different. The reason is that not just knowing the healthcare or medicine is sufficient, you need to have a much wider view of the problem. Otherwise, there will be side effect. And when we solve a problem, most of the time, what we do, we call it the reductionist approach. We take a large problem, break it into smaller pieces, and we find solution for that smaller pieces, and then we stitch it up. It will not work in healthcare. There is no you know, one size fits all. If I give a drug, that drug will work for somebody. The drug will not work for many people. That drug will be toxic for many, many other people. Oh. So there is no one size fits all. Now, this reductionist approach does not always work in healthcare. And as I said, that I've been working in so many domains, so many verticals, including genomics, it helps me to understand the problem at a system level, at a system level, not at a reductionist, smaller piece level. So I can move from system level to the, you know, reductionist, smaller piece, and then move to and fro and manage that. And I would, I would appreciate anybody who has that broader view of this will be very, very successful. And that is what is required. Doctors, if you look at them, they are very, very compartmentalized. Very, very compartmentalized. Okay? They don't know anything. And the, when you become, still MBBS is good because in MBBS doctor, they have wide variety of knowledge. But after MBBS, they do MD. And once they do MD, they become too narrow compartmentalized. They, anything you ask outside their domain, they will say, uh, well, I can say, but uh, you don't want to listen to me. You better go to this specialist. Mm -hmm. So if you want to be successful in healthcare, you have to have horizontal knowledge more than the vertical knowledge. Vertical knowledge, you can hire 20 guys who has that vertical knowledge and they can do for you. But if you are the architect, you need to have the horizontal knowledge, which will give you the wider bandwidth. And good luck, bad luck. Fortunately, unfortunately, my past made me that and today, when I, when I fail on something, I become much more egoistic and try to crack it. And I do it. Mm -hmm. I do it. Yeah. That's fun. That's fun. So that leads to the next curiosity question, which is what is your personal approach or technique to manage your horizontal and vertical knowledge that you've been acquiring in so many diverse topics over the years? Well, I can just tell you, the problem, and it is, it is good, I like to give the examples. So let me take an example. The example was that, you know, I was trying to, in 2017, National Institute of Health, NIH in US, they released more than one lakh X-ray images. Now, 
I don't have a supercomputer where I could load that. I tried in my little high-powered laptop. I could not do more than 8,000 images. And then just week before last, when I first started in, in IT after so many years, the moment I landed, they said that, uh, Professor Talukdar, could you take a course on uh, machine learning? Because the previous faculty, she left. I said, okay, this is uh, something interesting and challenging. But they had a GPU machine, which is equivalent to supercomputers. And uh, mm. GPUs, as you know, they are close to 100 times faster than CPUs, because especially for deep learning. So what I did, I was able to load that more than one lakh images and got a model. And that model gave me an accuracy of 97%, 97%, Wow, much higher than human radiologists, literally. Okay. I'm not going into that debate at all. Now, after that was done, I'm now integrating it with telemedicine. But then I thought that my, my goal right now is to make telemedicine and medical knowledge, what I call democratization. So I, 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 I work on knowledge graphs where I have taken disease, disease-related knowledge, oncology-related knowledge, pathology-related knowledge, and registomics, which is antibiotic resistance related knowledge, put it into the knowledge graph so that a non-expert can work as good as an expert because everything is in the knowledge graph, which is mm. machine accessible, machine interpretable. So mm. all I need is a smart layer to interrogate and it runs on knowledge graph. It is not a relational database. It's a mm. graph database, yeah. knowledge graph directly mapped into Neo4j uh, graph database. So then I thought, okay, I got the X-ray 97% accuracy. Can I now do a heat map to say precisely where in the X-ray there is anomaly, which human eyes cannot see a lot of time. Hmm. But the pixels, they tell you the story. You know, they have the information, but you as a human being miss a lot of time. And if you are not that experienced radiology, you will definitely miss it. In Massachusetts General Hospital, once there was a survey, and in that survey, they found out that they re-examined the same X-rays, which were examined earlier. And when it was re-examined by somebody else, they found that 30% of the cases, they disagreed. Mm. But when the same doctor was given another X-ray or CT scan, which they diagnosed earlier, 25% of them disagreed okay. with their own second yeah. opinion. Uh-huh. It is cited. Now, so I got 97%. Now, if I have to, so my interest for last about a week after I came back from NIT after using the GPU, getting the model with 97% accuracy, can I now take that X-ray image and put a heat map there saying this is the center where there is some anomaly or looks like some abnormality. Now, 
I come to your question directly. How do I do it? So what I did, I'm reading journal papers, see whether anybody has done it. I found, yes, there is a, there is a model called UNET, which practically does segmentation of the images. And that is exactly what I want, but in a different type of segmentation. Mm -hmm. So I found the paper trying to understand, looking for open source. I found quite a few open source, but none of them are fitting to my requirement. So I'm now taking those open source code, playing with that, understanding it. And trust me, by next week, I'll be going through at least 30, 40 open source code and at least four or five papers and five, six tutorials, try to understand at the deep level of it. And the moment I'm done, then I will do copy paste code from all those open source codes. And then use on my data. It will work, but it will not work the way I want. And then after the system is ready, prototype is ready, I will just redo the whole code okay. in a much better structured way, in a documented way, which can be now put into my other AI engines for healthcare. And practically, we are about to start a trial of this in Pune with one of the leading hospitals there. And I also have WebRTC-based telemedicine, which will, start, which will start its trial maybe in a few weeks down the line for cardiology, and it will be used by Rotary Club of Bangalore. But that is how I do. Challenges are there. You do it. Of course, I have to work hard. So I work about 12 to 14 hours a day. Wonderful. Very inspiring. Thank you. I didn't realize how much time we've been talking or you've been sharing your stories. One question that I normally like to ask all our guests before we conclude is more like career advice. In your case, one thing that I want to understand is how do we create the interest in students to do some research or do some academic work rather than jumping into these, you know, the high paying, attractive IT jobs? It's a very good question. And this question is very close to my heart because, you know, today, unfortunately, in India, the social fabric is such that a lecturer, when he becomes the head of the department, he is more respected than a professor who is doing much fundamental work. Everybody, so after age, if I ask you to hire me, not you as uh, Mr. Shibguru, but if you are an HR guy, if, you, if I ask you to hire me, you will say that I'm overqualified or I'm old, I cannot make it. But the point is that now the judgment in our society or we, judge by who is earning how much of money. But I would like to tell every young guys that look, MBA will help you to reach somewhere. But beyond that, what? What about tomorrow? If you want to be productive like me, then you have to be both theoretical and also experimental. And you need to expand your knowledge base. 
going to administration, becoming a manager is good. It will fetch you more money and respect in the society. But then HR guys, after 45 or 50, if you are made redundant, you have a serious problem. If you want to extend your life expectancy in technology areas, then you have to update your knowledge and be hands-on. That's all I want to say. And that is why almost I'm, I'm, I'm quite old. My age is close to 70. At this age, institute like NIT request me to take class and that also in deep learning, machine learning, and I use GPU. And now I'm telling the PhD students and some of the faculties in NITK how to use GPU. Mm -hmm. GPU machine was lying there for long, but mm -hmm. they did not know how to use it. And I'm not exaggerating, it's fact. Mm. Because it runs on Unix. And we have lost touch with Unix or any of those systems. Windows is very user-friendly, but it also makes people dumb. Mm. And this is what I say, Unix is written by smart guys for smart people. Whereas Windows are written by smart guys for not so smart people, which is majority of the population. But when somebody is an IT professional, I would definitely advise them not to use Windows. You use Linux or Unix because there is no GUI. Of course, you can get you know all those Windows and other things today. If things work, plug and play, nothing like it. But most of the time, when the problem is complex, it will not be plug and play. You have to solve the problem. And if you have to solve the problem, you need to know the detail. Devil is there on the detail. And we are losing focus on details. We are all doing shortcut and not smart shortcuts. That is one of the major problems we have across the board, across all universities and everywhere. So I will suggest a younger, Young, to young population or anybody young, please go into the detail. The devil is in the detail. The beauty is in the detail. I don't know whether I have answered your question, but that is what I feel. Yeah, absolutely. And very, very nicely put. So on that note, we are really out of time for this conversation. I have a lot more questions. I'll probably reach out to you. There are some common interests, particularly in you know, knowledge graphs and all that which I would like to gain from your experience and knowledge. So thanks a lot, Ashok, for being on the Software People stories and sharing these wonderful nostalgic stories, which are still relevant in terms of how you went about debugging, how you solve problems, how you learn. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the Software People stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.